0: We have another sober responsibility. To recognize the possibilities of nuclear war in the missile age without our citizens knowing what they should do and where they should go, if bombs begin to fall, would be a failure of responsibility. Tomorrow I am requesting of the Congress new funds for the following immediate objectives. To identify and mark space in existing structures, public and private that could be used for fallout shelters in case of attack, to stock those shelters with food, water, first aid kits, and other minimum essentials for our survival, to increase their capacity, to improve our air raid warning and fallout detection systems, including a new household warning system which is now under development, and to take other measures that will be effective at an early date to save millions of lives if needed.
1: And welcome to the 13th episode but the very first sequel of American History 2 as we return to the topic of nuclear fallout. We'll endeavor to make this episode the Back to the Future 2 of sequels rather than the Matrix reloaded of second runs or even The Godfather 2 rather than The Godfather 3. Uh, I am Mark McClay but more importantly for this episode I am joined by our very own nuclear weapon aficionado Dr Malcolm Craig. Hello Malcolm. Hello, Mark. That was quite a strained metaphor
2: you opened up with. And actually, I think Godfather 3 isn't that bad a film. Anyway, uh, so yes, we return to the subject of nuclear fallout and kind of like, you know, the, the nuclear Cold War in general this time.
1: Yeah. I mean, just before we get back into it this week, can I just ask, what was it that actually piqued your interest in nuclear war in the first place, or in nuclear weapons especially?
2: I was growing up in the 1980s. Uh, there was, as a kid, I didn't really understand you know, adults around me were scared. There was, you know, people on television talking about kind of like, you know, these bombs and kind of people were scared of stuff and all that kind of thing. And part of it is, I think my academic interest in it is an effort to try and understand what made me scared as a kid and, oh, try, and, really try, and get to, try and get to the, the roots of that. I think that's the simple explanation.
1: So you would have been growing up at the time when, like, Reagan was sort of increasing yeah. Cold War spending and then the whole Star Wars SDI system and everything. So whereas, like saw growing up, ten years later, I think we were roughly exactly ten yeah. years separating us. You know, like I just never thought about nuclear weapons; they were just there. They weren't really that important. um But yeah, so it's interesting that that that, that shift. But anyway, um moving on to uh, what we're going to talk about in terms of nuclear fallout. So I kind of re-listened to the first episode we did of this in uh, December um, before doing this episode, and I think there's a lot of key information in there for those that haven't. Uh, listened aren't, or maybe aren't very okay with what you know Fallout is. So those those who haven't listened might want to do so before continuing that episode. And we reposted the link for it um on our Twitter account. That's at ah two podcast, uh, with the two being T O O, um yesterday. So if if you want to do that, then please feel free to do so. Or also, you'll find it on your iTunes stream or whatever. Um, but maybe uh just quickly, Malcolm, you may want to do a quick recap. Of what of what we covered, um,
2: yep. Uh, last time, I mean, I think we talked about the origins of the atomic bomb, uh, where it came from, uh, pre World War Two, the Manhattan Project, and the, the development of the, of the atomic bomb, its use at the end of uh, end of World War Two, and its position as as one of the factors that's kind of involved in the onset of Cold War and all that thing. But I think we then we primarily focused on. The, the 1950s, where we see the development of the hydrogen bomb, or the thermonuclear weapon. And these are the you know, civilization ending, if you want to do apocalyptically powerful weapons that are quite quantitatively different from the atom bomb. And also we discussed the, the really important Castle Bravo test of March 1954, which was an American uh, nuclear test in the Pacific where the bomb they were testing uh, was about two and a half times more powerful than we thought it would, and created a giant public outcry, and bought the, brought the term "fallout" into the public lexicon. It had been used before, but after Castle Bravo, that's the first time you really see fallout coming into, into the you know public discourse. And then I think we concluded with some comment on Britain and the Strath Report of 1955, which presents the British government with this apocalyptic picture of what will happen to an Britain. Under,
1: an underplayed apocalyptic picture, if I remember
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, ever so slightly. and But still apocalyptic nonetheless, a picture of Britain that cannot survive in the new hydrogen bomb age. And then we finished with a very brief comment on uh, Peter Watkins' 1965 drama documentary, uh, The War Game, which we didn't have much time to talk about, so I think we're going to discuss that today so that's a rough
1: yeah great so I mean so I think we'd, we'd made it up yet yeah, to about the kind of late 50s early 1960s when we left off last time so I mean for most of the 1950s you know in America you know the Republican President Dwight Eisenhower has been in charge of foreign policy and it's kind of uh, it's kind of based around the idea of massive retaliation, which I think was coined by Secretary of State John Foster, Foster Dulles. Dulles. Yeah. Um, and the kind of idea being that if a war was to come between the you know the great powers of the US, the Soviet Union, say, for example, in Berlin, uh, where there's still an ongoing crisis there, then the US would not rule out the prospect of using nuclear weapons. If we can just If we can
2: just correct you there, actually, what massive retaliation says at its heart is that any that a threat to United States interests mm-hmm. will be met with a nuclear response. Essentially, there is, it's almost going from like zero to a hundred miles an hour. There's no room for ambiguity. There's no room for amb- ambiguity. And that's one of the things about massive retaliation. It says, threaten our interests, we will respond uh, with our nuclear weapons. And that, I mean, that's the problematic part yeah. of massive retaliation. I mean. A slight problem.
1: I mean, it's meant, it sounds very aggressive, but it's actually meant as a sort of deterrent to war, isn't it? Well, It's sort of saying that, you know, um, you know, if you go to war or you threaten our interests, we will use a nuclear bomb on you. That seems like a decent deterrent to war, you know, it's the whole idea behind that thesis. But I mean, anyway, if, if, and then in 1960, you know, like JFK successfully runs for the presidency with one of his key criticisms about Eisenhower's administration being that there was this missile gap. Yeah, which I think you can confirm was completely made up that the US had fallen behind the the Soviet Union.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea of the missile gap was that the Soviet Union, Khrushchev had said, thing, we are turning these missiles out like sausages. The this Soviet U- Soviet Premier so- at the time, yeah. Khrushchev. And this is the very very early days of the ICBM. You know, people are still relying. Voli- both sides are still relying on bombers as the ICBM Premier. as an in- intercontinental ballistic missile. So a missile that you can fire from somewhere in Kazakhstan and hit Washington. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, Khrushchev uh, made these claims, but in, in reality, the Soviet ICBM program was behind the United States. At the kind of the height of the missile gap furore, the Soviet Union, I think, had four operational intercontinental ballistic missiles. And it's unlikely they would have got off the ground in the event of a nuclear war. It yeah. took ages to get going to fuel up. So, it was, it was completely made up
1: scare, but Kennedy uses it to imply that Eisenhower has been weak. In defending yeah. America. And his opponent, the Vice President, Richard Nixon, can't say anything because he's bound by secrecy mm. at the time, so it's a very clever strategy. Um, and then finally, I suppose, in 1962 we have the Cuban Missile Crisis <coughs> during the Ken- Kennedy presidency, and that's sometimes described as, you know, the closest the world ever came to nuclear war, um, but is then avoid- avoided, thankfully, of course. Uh, and I-, I think that in a future podcast we'll probably come back to a discussion on the Cuban Missile Crisis. About now. how luck played a huge factor. I look forward to the discussion. Yeah. I thought it was all Kennedy's deaf skill and his ability to send a bit harshly worded telegram. Luck. <laughs> a <laughs> lot of the Cuban Missile Crisis comes down to luck. So, I mean, as such, I think the picture I've been trying to build up here is that, you know, surely n- nuclear nuclear issues are front and centre, surely of politicians and the public's mind. I mean, tell me that Fallout is is being thought about, you know, ways to avoid everybody dying in a fiery storm um, tell me that's front and centre of... Well, the question of fallout and what fallout
2: is... Because people become concerned about fallout because of nuclear testing. Then, you know, you get into the kind of like scenarios about what will a nuclear war mean. So, as well as the sheer physical destructive power of H-bombs... There's also the residual fallout that's going to kind of cover the land and radioactivity. So there's two different things going on here. One is the concern about nuclear testing and what that is doing to the environment.
1: And that stems from Castle Bravo. And that stems. Yeah.
2: Castle yeah. Bravo is one of the catalytic yeah. moments in that. And, and the other one is the threat of nuclear war. So the two things are kind of interlinked, mm-hmm. but sometimes conflated. And the public all around the world, and we'll think primarily about America and Britain, are being given conflicting information. On one hand, you have governments like the Eisenhower administration, you know saying, "No, everything's fine, it's okay. you don't need to worry about it. the threat of fallout from nuclear testing is limited." And which is for those in continental America? broadly true, not for those, for example, people living in the Pacific Islands and all that kind of thing, who the Marshall Islanders after the Bravo test. Get irradiated so not around. only
1: can they not vote for president, but they, can, they also are the ones at risk of nuclear fallout. Exactly. <laughs> right. uh, very, very badly at risk.
2: So people have been given conflicting information. On one hand, government is projecting, you know, this is fine, it's safe, we can deal with this, it's okay. On the other hand, you get campaigning organisations like SANE and the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, two of the major anti- What does stand for? Uh, there, it's actually it's not actually stand stand for anything. It's actually just a shortened version of the committee for a sane nuclear policy. Oh right, and they're just okay. called SANE for short. Uh, and they are the ma- one of the major American campaigning organisations, and the campaign for nuclear disarmament are one of the major British campaigning organisations. And they get going in the mid to late nineteen fifties mm-hmm. when we see this real, you know, rise of anti nuclear protests. So On one hand, you get campaigning organisations and some scientists and public figures giving their view on what fallout from testing and about the threat of nuclear war. On the other hand, you've got governments and government officials and government scientists giving conflicting information. So the public is kind of confused. And there's a bit of apathy. In the United States, this kind of apathy builds up uh, about this fallout issue into the late 1950s.
1: Which is strange, I suppose, if you think about just how strong anti-communism is during the 1950s. You know, you'd think the two things would be would be linked in that sense.
2: Uh, but I mean, but this is this is the thing. It's the it's America that's carrying out the testing that people are worried about. It's not even the the Soviets are carrying out their testing up in, uh, in Novaya Zemlya or at Semipalatinsk, which is thousands and thousands of miles away.
1: So I don't even know where those places are. Yeah, well,
2: <laughs> if you look on a map, you'll find out. Uh, but you know, the United States is carrying out testing in Nevada. It's carrying out testing primarily in the Pacific, and people are concerned that this. Uh, the fallout is going to float through the atmosphere and land on them. There's like minor scares. Like uh, in one town, people start saying that their windscreens are being pitted. There's little pits appearing in the windscreens of their cars. And this is being caused by nuclear fallout. And there's a minor scare about this. the Nuclear fallout is causing their windscreens to deteriorate. It's actually untrue. People are just noticing that naturally over time, windscreens pit. You get, you know, little chips and all that kind of thing. But people are saying, "Oh, because the idea of fallout is in the air." If you'll pardon the pun, the they associate it with fallout. They're making this connection that isn't actually there. So there is a certain amount of you know kind of concern. People are associating with things, but there's a certain amount of apathy
1: as well. Okay, so I mean, uh, does, does anything happen to sort of uh, to trigger more concern to to wake people out of their their apathy?
2: I think there's the Berlin crisis. 1958 to 62, where there's a very serious confrontation uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States, and also involving West Germany, East Germany, European nations, all that kind of thing. And it's about the the status of the two Germanys, about the, the Berlin, we could spend multiple podcasts talking about the intricacies of the Berlin crisis, incredibly mm-hmm. complex, even more so than, than is far more complex than Cuba. Uh, but... The Berlin crisis, a major confrontation between the two superpowers. This is something that's causing great concern. There are kind of like veiled threats of nuclear war. Nuclear weapons are you know, inherently involved in what is happening with the Berlin crisis. A lot of it's to do with the thought of giving the West German armed forces, the Bundeswehr, access to nuclear weapons. And this is a major concern. Nuclear weapons are at the heart of the Berlin crisis. But Kennedy, in the, the opening speech... Uh, that we used at the start of this episode. Yep. Uh, That is Kennedy talking in mid-1961, during the height of the Berlin crisis, and about the threat of, you know, one coming nuclear war. And he's saying one of these things we're going to do is build uh, fallout shelters. And he actually puts a lot of money and a lot of government effort to this fallout shelter programme. So it's kind of, you get as part of this, a lot of people think that Private family nuclear shelters in in the United States during this period are bomb shelters. They're mm-hmm. not. They won't protect you against a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. They're fallout shelters. They're just designed to protect the family against against radioactive fallout. You stay in there for a few weeks after after a nuclear war, and hopefully come out and everything will be dandy. Oh, and we can all pick up where we left off and everything. Not so much. Not so. Not so much. But Kennedy makes a big thing about this. And puts a lot of money and propaganda did, did, and effort.
1: Does it? he do so with genuine intentions, um, or is this for that? Is this basically a a way to mislead the public?
2: No, I think there's a, there's a genuine concern that that nuclear war might be on the horizon, and America has to survive. You know, we have to find every way we can to survive through deterrence, through continental defence, and also through kind of giving the population. You know some form of reassurance there's a very good book by uh a historian tracy davis called stages of emergency and it's about the way that a lot of this is is theater it's a stage it's like a sticking plaster it's showing that the you way know, you've got to be seen to be doing something rather than seen to be doing nothing mm-hmm. so it's as if you know it's this theater of security mm-hmm. like when you go to the airport and there's all these layers of security you know, to prevent, you know, terrorism and all that kind of thing. I mean, you prevent terrorism way before the yeah. airport stage. So it's that kind of theatre of
1: security is is part of this. Now well, that's really interesting. I mean, I suppose people would have probably been rushing to buy nuclear fallout shelters um, had they known about something that happened in 1961, uh, around about when Kennedy was speaking. I was wondering if you could maybe. So I remember when I first heard about this incident, it, it literally, like, I think I gasped, <laughs> like you know, and this is when uh, the Goldsboro B fifty two crash that happens in North Carolina. Now my very limited understanding of this is that it basically accidentally drops a nuclear bomb on North Carolina. No, no. But thankfully, it doesn't go off. It accidentally it's...
2: drops two nuclear bombs on oh. North Carolina. <laughs> uh, to be strictly accurate, yeah, I mean the Goldsboro incident is one of the famous. You know, nuclear near misses of this period. So at this point, you have American B fifty two bombers on on nuclear alert. There are a certain number of bombers from Strategic Air Command, the part of the Air Force that controls the nuclear strike force, in the air at all times, armed with hydrogen bombs, ready to go if America is attacked. Okay, so they're in the air, and one of these, but this is this happens in January nineteen sixty one. So, uh, you know, Kennedy has just become president. Uh, so, and, th- and this happens: uh, the B fifty two starts developing a serious fuel leak, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's called back to base, and they can't get the plane back to base. So the captain orders the crew to bail out. Now, one of the tragic parts is not all the crew survive. A couple, you know, a couple of them die on landing. Uh, all, that, all that kind of thing uh, to die. Actually, they're trapped in the plane and die in the crash as it starts to gyrate and mm-hmm. break up. And the plane, this giant bomber, breaks up on its way to the ground, and the gyration shakes loose these two Mark Thirty Nine hydrogen bombs,
1: which are about
2: four megaton, three point three point eight four megaton. Uh, are, we, are
1: we talking like to the extent that if it, if they had exploded, you know, there would have only been like South Carolina as well started calling itself Carolina.
2: No, 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 no. I mean, they're, they're just simply not that powerful. They would have... I mean, they could
1: dest- F- destroy... F- Megaton since powerful. It is it's <laughs> powerful,
2: but no, but, I mean, you're not going to be able to draw, destroy an entire state with one right. of these weapons. I you can draw a, destroy a city, but you can't destroy a, a state. Right. Uh, but these are still apocalyptically powerful weapons. Uh, and as they kind of leave the B-52 and plummet towards the ground, they for one of them... The arming mechanisms start tripping, so it's getting ready to blow up. Uh-huh. And one of the frightening parts of the Goldsboro incident is that one of the bombs one hit, of the frightening parts one, <laughs> one of the bombs <laughs> hits the ground, and only one arming the six arming mechanisms, and only one arming mechanism is left. Oof. And it's just I mean, it's, there's a, a very interesting book by the investigative journalist Eric Schlosser. Uh, who did uh, Fast Food Nation, is one of the books he's most ah, most fa- famous for, uh, called Command and Control, which is about the problems with the command and control system and also nuclear accidents in the United States. A very interesting book. I don't agree with all of his assertions, but it's certainly a remarkable work of research mm-hmm. and investigation. And he quite extensively looks at the Goldsboro incident and there's uh, a claim, and I'm not just saying this, is Schlosser saying this, that, This proved how dangerous the nuclear weapons were. On the other hand, you could look at it and go, the system worked. Yeah, we were one little switch away from annihilating Goldsboro, North Carolina, but the system worked. But it's still terrifying, the fact that these two two bombs, and one of the bombs actually has never really been recovered. It hit the ground, its parachute didn't open, it hit the ground so hard, it buried itself into the ground, and because of there's so much groundwater and flooding, the uranium core is still down there.
1: Really? Yeah. Yeah. The, p- the, part the, part, the, part,
2: the part that sets off the fusion reaction within the the fusion material in a hydrogen bomb is still down there. The, the land was purchased by the United States Army Corps of Engineers and kind of sealed off yeah. and all that kind of thing. But Goldsboro is interesting because it shows the danger of these planes on nuclear alert. And in 1969, this document... And sh- oh, apologies. <laughs> It, that's the bullshit alert. Um, the uh, I think Schlosser got this through Freedom of Information, a 1969 report into the Goldsboro incident that essentially said these weapons were not safe to be carried on continuous airborne alert. And this is the armed forces actually saying these weapons are not safe to be carried on airborne
1: alert. I mean, when does when does Goldsboro come to light anyway? Because um, I mean, it's not something that's widely known at the time, is it? It's it's kind of relatively, uh,
2: you know. It gets known a little bit, but it's covered up a lot. because it's a major accident in terms of you know, America's, you know, deterrent capability. So they don't want to publicise it. But it is one of those incidents that's kind of like known uh, in the general thing. There's a there's a brilliant sign, uh, you know, outside Goldsboro uh, that commemorates the event, and on it it says B fifty two transporting two nuclear bombs crashed January nineteen sixty one, widespread disaster averted, three crewmen died. But the sign is titled "Nuclear Mishap." So <laughs> like, I think it was slightly more than a nuclear mishap,
1: but it's
2: it's an so interesting event, you know.
1: Event. So finding about about Goldsborough has literally made my jaw drop, um, and as such, I think we're going to now talk about teeth. Um, that's about the best tenuous link I could. Come my up father with there. would be
2: pleased. He's a, a dentist, and he'd be delighted. I'm talking about dental history. Yeah.
1: So when we were promoting this episode on Twitter, you chimed in and said we're going to be chatting about teeth. Um, you know, I was quite unaware of what, what you were talking about when you said this, so could you maybe explain to me why we're going to talk about teeth? So a really dangerous part of Fallout
2: is the presence of an isotope called Strontium-90. Okay. Now this gets released as part of a nuclear explosion. That sounds made up. It's no, no, it's absolutely true. It's an isotope, isotope of strontium. Uh,
1: You're not trolling
2: the entire No, 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 no no, 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 no. You can look in the periodic table <laughs> if you want. You know, trust, trust me, I'm a doctor. Uh, <laughs> this gets released as part of the nuclear explosion and is quite significant in a human context because it's what's called a bone seeker. This isotope heads to the bone marrow uh, and it gets into the bone marrow and can cause deadly bone cancers. Uh, so... What do baby teeth have to do with strontium-90 and deadly bone cancer? Uh, There was a survey set up by uh, anti-nuclear groups, uh, the University of St. Louis and the Washington University School of Dental Medicine. And a key figure in this uh, was a physician named Louise Rice, uh, who, along with her husband, who was also a physician, in 1959 appealed to parents to send in their children's baby teeth. You're thinking, Malcolm, what on earth does this have to do with Mm -hmm. anything? These teeth, all from children born after the event of large-scale atmospheric nuclear testing, that's the important point, were analysed for the presence of strontium-90, this deadly uh, isotope. So Rice studied somewhere in the region of 300,000 individual baby teeth. It's a remarkable feat of scientific investigation. You know, Louise Rice is remarkable in her persistence in this. Uh, and he, she published her findings in the, the highly respected journal Science in November 1961. And the studies showed that there were elevated levels of strontium-90 in the teeth. And even more alarmingly, and this, I think this is actually more alarming than Weiss's original study, a follow-up study showed that children born, between, born in 1963 had absorbed levels of strontium-90 that were 16 times higher than children born five years earlier.
1: Can I, where is she collecting the teeth? Is it just people in the St. Louis area? Or is it people across the United States? All, all over the
2: United States, people people send envelopes with their uh, with their children's baby teeth in them. It's, it's it's a very
1: different version of the Tooth Fairy.
2: It's, it's, <laughs> you know. it's kind of like it's like crowdsourcing during the Cold War on this kind of massive <laughs> scale. Thing is, at the same time, so this people are kind of like starting to find out what Strontium ninety is and the dangers it poses. At the same time, uh, the Consumers Union publish an analysis of strontium-90 levels in milk. Okay? Now, because everyone drinks milk, you know. Now, although the report concluded that the levels in the samples taken were within the safe limits given by government organisations, obviously you can question, well, how are they, what is their decision-making regarding safe limits? The levels were rising, and it's a matter for grave concern. So these two studies, the baby teeth study and the milk study, they increase awareness of the threat of Strontium-19 nuclear fallout. And you get situations like President Kennedy doing that thing. And I wonder if this is the first instance of this that politicians do when there's a food scare of being seen to eat that food or consume that food, mm-hmm. like cabinet ministers over here making their kids eat hamburgers during the BSE scare. Yeah, and, I, and Kennedy, in public, drinks a large glass of milk and announces that milk would be served at White House meals at all times because it's nutritious and important. And all that kind of thing.
1: That's uh, I'm I'm actually I'm actually a little bit speechless after that. <laughs> well, I, I don't worry. So I can I mean, kind of, There's more to this. I, don't know. I was gonna say, is this not? It's fronting ninety. Is this not like wonderful fodder for like you know? We discussed conspiracy theories the other day. With this, would this not like, confirm all the wonderful suspicions <laughs> they must have?
2: Well, there are conspiracy theories su- surrounding nuclear weapons are are legion. But what I think is more important than. Than that, though, is the actual effect it has on government. These studies, the Baby Teeth Study and the Milk Study. Do tell us. And it leads to a couple of things. The Baby Teeth Report especially. no, it wasn't the major influence on Kennedy. It was one of the influences on Kennedy, uh, Kennedy's thinking, regarding his decision-making about the US-UK-USSR Limited test ban treaty. Okay, It's the first real arms control measure yeah. uh, of the Cold War. Uh so that's, that's kind of important. Now, one of the big things that, about the test ban treaty is obviously the Cuban Missile Crisis. One of the, one of the, but the Baby Tea study and this milk study and the, kind of the emerging awareness of strontium 90 is part of this move towards trying to try and limit atmospheric, atmospheric nuclear testing. The other thing uh, was that this increased public awareness also led to women all across America uh, initially associated with a major anti nuclear protest group, same. Uh, drawing upon these milk study concerns, uh, so they initially met. The initial group met in the home of children's book el- illustrator Dagmar Wilson, and then they organised protests and marches across the country. Uh, and their call was particularly targeted at mothers, and had slogans such as "End the arms race, not the human race," and "Let the children grow." Uh, and at one stage, they organised marches of fifty thousand women all across america to protest against atmospheric nuclear testing fallout strontium 90 the contamination of of milk the contamination of their children uh, all that kind of thing so these are the kind of important uh, effects that these studies and this awareness of fallout in the 1960s after the apathy of the, the late 50s mm. so, so it's yeah apathy. it's
1: interesting they're not protesting nuclear well, they are protesting nuclear weapons, but they're not. It's not the warfare aspect; it's the fallout aspect. It's interesting how that's. Well, I mean, the two things are happening uh, at the same time. Yeah. We've not really talked about anti-nuclear protests against
2: the threat of nuclear war, but I think the the fallout fallout in and particularly the threat to life posed by strontium ninety, I think it does have a significant effect on civil society. So the increasing availability of of information and the kind of the the scientific nature of that information made the ordinary American in the street more aware of fallout. Although it is it's problematic to try and work out how much of an influence all this really has in terms, of the, in terms of the big picture. So from 1955 to 1961, the number of people able to correctly answer questions about fallout tripled. So that's an interesting increase mm-hmm. in, in the level of awareness. Yet by 1961, it was still a minority who regarded fallout as a serious health risk. Not a, not a tiny minority, but still a minority. So it seems the impact of things like the, the milk study and the baby tea study are kind of kind of varied, but there's also the thing that environmentalism is becoming a big issue in this, this time is as when well.
1: You get what Rachel Carson's The Silent Spring is. Nineteen 60, sixty-two. Silent 62, 62, sixty-two. I think Silent Spring comes yeah. out. But yeah, a much bigger issue.
2: And anti-nuclear protest groups like CND in the UK are using science and scientists to appeal to the public on environmental and health grounds. And actually, there was a symposium I organised last week. It was a fascinating paper uh by Paul Sims, a PhD student uh, at Queen Mary in London, who's working on the rise of environmental issues in the UK during the 1950s and 60s. And his research is really fascinating. And it shows the interconnectedness of personal health, environmentalism, science, and anti-nuclear protest well, should in the it period. To Paul, then. It's very, very interesting.
1: It was an excellent and very interesting paper. No, I mean, that, that's... That's fascinating. The discussion you've had there of Strontium and the, you know the effect it had on government policy, and which then the you know the sort of effect as well had on the public. But if we look even more, if we we go back to kind of looking at fallout and look at it in a cultural context um, and how it influenced popular culture. So when I think of nuclear weapons um, in popular culture at this time, I always think of the nineteen sixty four film Doctor Strange Love. Um, which is a wonderful, wonderful satirical look at the Cold War and nuclear weapons that I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to watch. Um,
2: and I would agree with you. I think it's the 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 greatest satire on the absurdity and just sheer nonsense of nuclear weapons. If, yeah. if anyone hasn't
1: seen it, you should watch Doctor Strange Love now. Yeah, exactly. You can even pause us, go away and watch it, and come back. Stay um, on. <laughs> But of course, I mean Doctor Strange will have finishes and spoiler alert here um, with the series of nuclear explosions going off, but we never see the consequences. Probably because it's likely hard to make a satire out of nuclear fallout. Um, but there must have been more, must have been other cultural sources that do take on this challenge, Malcolm. Um, yeah, I mean the th- threat posed by fallout and more
2: widely radiation and the kind of the serious consequences of of nuclear weapons ill-understood in the public domain, greatly impacted popular culture. So in 1962, for example, uh, so after this stuff about the baby teeth and the milk study and all these kind of things, but about nuclear testing, all, all this, Berlin crisis, the comics legend Stan Lee uh, created the Incredible Hulk and Spider-Man. And the Hulk gains these terrifying powers after exposure to a nuclear blast. And then the mild-mannered Bruce Banner can now transform into the green-skinned, muscular Hulk. And in Spider-Man, Peter Parker, also mild-mannered, seems to be a theme, Uh, (laughs) is bitten by a radioactive spider, and lo and behold, becomes Spider-Man. And as historian Alan Winkler comments, uh, really interestingly, these comic book characters represented attempts to try and come to terms with the strange, mysterious, and often kind of dark effects of radiation. So while neither the Hulk nor Spider-Man were directly the products of Fallout per se, they came to life in this era of, of nuclear testing, superpower standoffs, and increasing public awareness of it and, and protest against the bomb.
1: So, so there you go. You've you've managed to somewhat ruin uh, everybody's favourite sort of superhero characters. Then. Oh no no, no I'll be fine. Uh, I'm sure people are okay with that. Yeah, don't make me tell you the story about where the Wizard of Oz comes from. That's even more depressing. Yeah. Um, that's actually about the Great Depression and populists in the 1890s. Who knew? I know. Uh, follow that yellow book road. Anyway, so <coughs> so to... What about... I mean, obviously, you're sort of talking about the creation of characters there. But were there any sort of works of literature um, that well, were, were important that come out of this uh, time?
2: Absolutely. I mean, the key one in this time is... Uh, Australian author Neville Shute's 1957 book, On the Beach. Uh, and it's really the the iconic image of nuclear war for the next couple of decades. Uh, so set, it's set in Australia, for those that have not read it, uh, after a nuclear war, has devastated the Northern Hemisphere. And the people wait for the day when the this encroaching, relentless radioactive clouds are drift south to engulf and kill them. I mean, essentially the book is about people waiting to die. It's, a, it's not a cheery novel at all. It's, and the ending is particularly lacking in any form of good cheer. Deep impact for the nuclear age. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the, then the book became a film in 1959, starring Gregory Peck and Eva Gardner, two of the biggest stars of the time. And though it alters the original source, it's still a very powerful and quite moving uh, bit of cinema. I think the lasting message of the book and the film was quite simple. There are no winners in a nuclear war. And the historian Daniel Cordell points out, like, during the 1960s and 70s, On the Beach became the iconic image of nuclear Armageddon. And indeed, the film was considered so grim that Eisenhower's cabinet discussed the image of nuclear war that it presented and had concerns about the way it was showing nuclear showing nuclear war.
1: So, I mean, that's, that's quite interesting because, obviously, if they've seen it and it becomes one of the iconic images, that means it was... It was shown without any problem. So there was no censorship. Oh, no, no. Up, that, that up that on is... the beach. Which brings us to the next film that I want to talk about, um, which, you know, I remember you, you, you screened a couple of years ago our Innovative Learning Week in, in University of Edinburgh I came along and watched and left um, utterly terrified. Traumatised <laughs> several people with that, yeah. So, so talk to me a wee bit about The War Game.
2: So The War Game was commissioned by the BBC. It's made in 1965 and it's by... The word maverick is used too often, But I think it's perfectly feasible to use it to describe the director of the war game, Peter Watkins, who has had a remarkable career uh, in making iconoclastic, individualistic bits of television and film. But he's commissioned by the BBC after the success of uh, a pseudo-documentary he made about the Battle of Culloden. And Watkins was one of the pioneers of of the fake documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can, I sometimes describe Watkins as he is the spiritual godfather of films like the Blair Witch Project. And all oh, really? So yeah. he pioneers, or he's one of the pioneers of the fake documentary, something that's made in a very serious documentary style, but is is made up. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so he's commissioned to to make the War Game about the effects of nuclear war on Britain. Uh, so it's a grainy black and white. Mock documentary interspersed with interviews with people about strontium ninety about the effects of nuclear war, and also talking heads giving the views of nuclear strategists, government officials, and ecclesiastical figures. Uh, like uh, I think it's a Church of England bishop uh, comments, and I paraphrase here that uh, the bomb is is fine as long as it is clean and is for, from a good family. <laughs> Essentially, going our bombs are
1: fine, their bombs are bad. Uh, so. New, our, I, I, I think of nuclear bombs as quite indiscriminatory. I have mm. to say, I think they're quite ecumenical in their, their, their willingness to hurt everyone. Well, so. as,
2: as Father, Father Jack would say and Father Ted, that would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> but I mean, the war game really is a gut wrenching bit of cinema. I mean, it's only 45 minutes long. it you know so many iconic moments that really stick in the mind. But despite being an outstanding piece of filmmaking, the real fame of the war game stems from the way the BBC and the British government responded to it. So after discussions with Harold Wilson's government, the BBC eventually decided that the film was, and I quote, too horrifying for the medium of broadcasting. And it was not shown on television until 20 years later. I mean, it did receive a limited cinema lease in the UK, Europe and United States. In fact, it wins the Oscar for best documentary. Really? I mean, that's one of the yeah. ivonies of it. Uh, and there's lots of debate in the historiography over whether the government was responsible, how far the government was responsible, you know, how the BBC took the decision, what the decision-making process is. Suffice it, there's lots of fascinating scholarship uh, on this subject we'll put up in the episode notes. And you could also watch the film on YouTube, although we are not endorsing watching films illegally. We just like Never to Never do, do such a thing. Perfectly, yeah. perfectly clear. But one of the really, really fascinating things, aside from the controversy surrounding it, and it's non-screening, is how, through Watkins' really rigorous research, he contacted... Like government departments civil defence organisations all sorts of group, you know anti nuclear protest groups he contacted everyone to get information about what a nuclear war is going to be like and its effects and as i mean the the war game shows a nuclear attack on britain and the aftermath and it's the aftermath i think that horrified most people it is utterly grim it is it is, it
1: is it's a really hard 45. i mean like i agree with you people should watch it it's very informative but you feel like you've come off a really, like you know, a really tough roller coaster that's gone on for forty five minutes. I know it's a horrible, ty- typical analogy, but you and through darkness as well. Like you've been riding this roller coaster yeah. through through darkness um, for the entire forty five. Yeah, I mean, minutes. for me, one of the iconic moments in it
2: is where this father is talking about after the nuclear war has taken place, and he's being interviewed and he's talking about how do you explain to your children that they're, they're gonna get cancer and die. And it's it's a really hard bit of footage to watch because you know it's it's made up, but it's addressing these really I think big important questions about you know how do
1: how do human beings deal with with nuclear war? Uh, so playing devil's advocate, I think the government, the BBC made the correct decision. I mean, like. Perhaps, you know, it's best not to scare the living
2: bejesus out of the population. Well, this was one of the arguments that was used at the time, that
1: said... I've heard it's one of the arguments that many of your students put forward. Many of my students in
2: my nuclear Cold War course argued that the, the BBC was quite right not to screen it. Many people made the argument at the time that the, the public should not be in the media. Uh, there was quite a split in the, the British media over whether it should be shown or not. Many newspapers said no, absolutely not. Uh, there were fears it would, you know, reinvigorate CND because CND has kind of declined a little after the Cuban Missile Crisis. CND had been the campaign, the campaign, for campaign, for campaign for nuclear disarmament. I think. So, but the fascinating thing about about the war game, I think, aside from everything else, is how much of it parallels what the nineteen fifty five Strath report said. It's almost a visual representation of the way that William Strath envisaged Britain to be after a nuclear war when he was writing his report in late 1954 and early 1955. You know, in essence, it says British society cannot continue in a recognisable form after a nuclear war. And I mean, there were, as I mentioned just a moment ago, there were fears in government and within the BBC that the film would simply be propaganda for anti-nuclear campaign groups such as C&D who had, as I said, had been losing ground since the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Limited Test Ban Treaty, and the relaxing and superpower tensions that would eventually lead to detente. So there was a lot of debate and discussion over the war game and what it meant and how ready were the public to to be subjected to this kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you you actually you mentioned briefly there uh, the... CND, which had certainly gone through quite a, in in Britain at least, and in Scotland, if where we are recording, of course, had gone through quite a a rise uh, when Polaris missiles were agreed to come to the Clyde in nineteen sixty, nineteen sixty one, and just to give our, our listeners a kind of flavour of uh, the the Scottish, well, actually nineteen sixty two, just, 1962, 1962, just after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, so one of the songs, uh, the famous anthem of the the CND movement, uh, the the chorus was. Oh, you can't spend a dollar when you're deed said. "Say, tell Kennedy he's got to keep the heat." Singing "Ding Dong Dollar," everybody holler. "You can't spend a dollar when you're deed. I don't know if they want to translate that for for American listeners, but they I, go in. I, I don't. But I hear Iggy Azalea is doing a cover version of
2: that. It's coming out next week. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, there was an attempt at modern pop cultural significance that yeah, I completely I, failed with. Yeah, I do not even know who you were talking about.
1: <laughs> Apparently, some <laughs> popular pop figure at the moment. All oh, right, okay. So, um, yeah, those things tend to fly over our heads. Yeah, um, because we we're too busy talking about nuclear weapons. But I think um, but this is on. the point where the the Polaris agreed the sky after what's called the
2: Skybolt crisis, where British nuclear deterrence slightly gets the rug pulled out on, from under it in 1962 by America deciding to cancel the Skybolt missile, which Britain had put all their eggs in that particular basket. Macmillan and Kennedy have this debate and Macmillan gets in late 1962, early 1963, what's, what he calls the, you know, the, the bargain of the century.
1: As Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Uh, yeah. Yep.
2: They get for Britain Polaris submarine launched nuclear missiles at an absolute bargain price, but they don't come online until 1968 mm-hmm. at the earliest. but it's an absolute bargain for Britain in terms of its, uh, its nuclear deterrent force using air quotes surrounding.
1: Yeah. And and now in modern day Scotland is now a debate raging whether we get whether to get rid of those nuclear missiles. So this is the, the campaign for nuclear disarmament did not stop in the sixties, but it's gone through many different phases. Yeah, I mean well I
2: think as the sixties progress, I mean fallout remains a concern and protest still takes place, but I think the anti-nuclear groups start to lose ground. And there's loads of reasons for this. The reduction in tensions after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Signing of the Limited Test Ban Treaty and the Vietnam War becoming a focus for anti-government protest. And anti-nuclear protest won't really rise again until the late 1970s and into the 1980s. Surely at that point though, they had Jimmy Carter to protest against. Well, <laughs> it, we, it, one, of, one of the things that, it, that causes the reinvigoration of anti-nuclear protest, one of the things is the neutron bomb controversy during Carter's presidency. In the late seventies and into the early eighties, but typical we, warmongering. We won't have to, we won't <laughs> have time to cover the neutron bomb controversy uh, at this stage, but maybe that's something for the future.
1: So, do you think um, is this as is this you taking us as far as you want to go with the topic of fallout, or, or do we have an episode three in the horizon? Oh no, I think we've got an episode three on the horizon at some point. That's fantastic news. Um, so, I think we'll kind of wrap it up there uh, today. Um, for a couple of weeks time we're going to be back and we're going to kind of be looking at some of the social and cultural happenings of the 1980s a very contested decade and as you've heard one that malcolm grew up um with as as the backdrop and um, so malcolm and i think after that as well next in a couple of weeks time we're gonna let everyone know what we're planning on doing over the summer because we're not planning on going away um, so Malcolm, thank you very much again for that wonderful uh, tour de force. Oh, no of problem Follett. at all. Um, and uh, thank you to you, listener, for listening. So cheerio and goodbye from me.
0: I always like to end on a positive note. So here is a rousing, uplifting song, which is guaranteed to cheer you up. <laughs> you attend a funeral, it is sad to think that sooner or later those you love will do the same for you. And you may have thought it tragic not to mention other adjectives to think of all the weeping they will do, but don't you worry, no more ashes, no more sackcloth, and an armband made of black cloth will someday nevermore adorn a sleeve. For if the bomb that drops on you Gets your friends and neighbors too There'll be nobody left behind to grieve And we will all go together when we go What a comforting fact that is to know Universal bereavement, an inspiring achievement Yes, we all will go together when we go All suffused with an incandescent glow No one will have the endurance to collect on his insurance Lloyds of London will be loaded when they go We will all burn together when we burn There'll be no need to stand and wait your turn When it's time for the fallout and St. Peter calls us all out We'll just drop our agendas and adjourn we will all go together when we go. Every hottentot and, and every Eskimo. When the air becomes Uranus, we will all go simultaneous. Yes, we all will go together when we all go together. Yes, we all will go together when we.